Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 14th, 2020. This is episode 2580, 2580 times we have gotten together at the Survival Podcast and it's a Tuesday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows 99.99% of the time, probably 98% of the time, whatever. Anyway, it is going to be a Just Jack show today and uh, big news, I, I've kind of put this out in, in asides and I've kind of put this out on social media a couple times. Jack's Laws of Life as a book is finished, at least my part of it's finished. Uh, John Pugliano is actually writing the forward for me, and a good friend of the, the show and the community, Salima, is doing the uh, the editing, and that's in progress. And I gave her 60 days, and she said she can do it in 60 days. So uh, the book is, is done. It's turned over to an editor. There may be a few clunky things in the conclusion that I might give the editor a little more freedom to fix because I feel like some things just came out clunky there. But otherwise, it's just done. And I think it came out really good. And my hope is that if the editor can have it done 60 days from the time I gave it to her, that I can have the book available for order within 60 more days or less. Uh, I'm probably going to be doing this on the Amazon platform. It seems like the best way to go. And I do have an ambassador program that I'll tell you about more today that you can be part of if you want to help spread this book when it comes out. And after today, you may feel more strongly that you want to. I, I think that there's that I've just done some really good work with this book. The book was originally called 30 Laws of Life, and it's now called 16 Laws of Life. What happened to the other 14? They're not gone, and I'll explain it all in just a minute. Before we get into the topic today... Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. Um, ButcherBox came to me a little over two years ago now and said, we would like to sponsor the show. I did have a sponsorship shot spot coming open and decided to go ahead and give them a shot. And they said, well, how about this? How about we just send you a big box of meat? Well, whether I was going to take them as a sponsor or not, I was okay, yeah, you can do that. So they sent me this box of amazing, you know, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, pastured pork, and it just blew me away with the quality. And when we started working at a deal to do this, they said, would you take payment in product? And I said, sure, I'll take payment in product. So we made that deal, and I get a big box of meat every every month, and you guys get them as a sponsor that helps support the show. And they have some really great deals from time to time. A lot of times they're for new people only, but they're so great about taking care of this audience. A lot of times I've made exceptions and let you know new customer only deals be added on to existing accounts. So I've got people that are getting you know bacon for life, uh, chicken for life, uh, and um, what was the other one? The uh, oh, the ground beef for life. Right. I got people with all three of those stacked onto their membership, getting a pound or two of all that stuff in addition forever. And additionally, if you're a member of the MSB, you get 10 bucks off every month. 
So, I mean, they've just been great to us, and the product quality is exceptional. I can't always say they're going to make exceptions like that with the special deals, but I'll always ask, and they've been great. They've sponsored my workshops. They've given me, you know, you know well over 100 pounds of meat to support workshops over the years, and it's just the best quality stuff you're going to get sent to you in a box for dadgone sure. Uh, check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know, it's easy to endorse a magazine that you subscribe to for the first time in 1994, and you've remained a subscriber to every, you know, day since. Now, I actually did stop being a subscriber for a while because Backwoods Home went away for about a year, and I was sad, and then it came back, and I was happy. Backwoods Home Magazine is the journal of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Great authors, great subject matter. I just love Backwoods Home. I mean, why would I have subscribed to the damn thing for almost 20 years if I wasn't in love with the publication? Check them out, and you'll understand why at BackwoodsHome.com. That brings us to our uh, quote of the day today. Quote of the day today is by Aristotle, and it kind of helps anchor the show. Because I'm talking about five of my 16 laws of life with you today. And uh, I'll explain it when I get to it. But the last law that we're going to speak about today is keep your true friends to people you want to be a little more like in some way. Aristotle said of friends, he who hath many friends hath none. And I don't think that that is a, a, is a call out to, hey, make sure you're enough of a jerk so only a few people want to be your friends. It's not about the total number of people you know or you generally like or generally like you. It's about choosing to use the word friend and what that word really means and how much have you or have you not cheapened the word. See, to me, if I consider you a friend, a true friend, I'll tell you a few things about you. One, your name's in my cell phone, and if you call me, I will probably answer. And if I don't answer, I will call you back. So, I mean, if you think you're my friend and you're not at that level, you're probably not. Doesn't mean I don't like you. Doesn't mean I wouldn't help you. Doesn't mean I don't think you're a good person. But if you're a friend, we spend time together. We spend significant amounts of time together. If you're a friend, I believe that if I called you and said I need your assistance with this, if the request was anything reasonable and ethical, you would do your best to help me and I would reciprocate. If you are my friend, I believe I can trust you. And I believe you know that you can trust me. If you are my friend, when I have time that I could be doing anything I wish to with, I will include you in that time, and I will do that frequently. If we're both in a place where we can do it anyway, geographically. And when we start to say, I have a lot of friends, and we don't mean those things and more, We've cheapened the word. We've cheapened the word to almost what it means that you and I, who never met each other, never spoke to each other, don't really know each other, and haven't even communicated really online other than sharing pictures of puppies, our friends on Facebook. I don't believe that that qualifies as a friend just because Mark Zuckerberg says it does. Technically, I'm friends on Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg. I do not consider Mark Zuckerberg to be a friend or a, or a friendly to the things that are important in my life, if that makes sense. He who hath 
Many friends, half none. Think about that as we go through today's show, especially when we get to the fifth law that we'll cover today. So let's start off. I wanted to talk a little bit about the origin of Spirico's Laws of Life so that people understand when I say some of the stuff, and they go, man, I've heard that from people other than you, you jerk. I've heard that before you were born. I'm older than you, son, and I, I, I remember back in 1965 hearing that, so that can't be your law of life. The concept of Spirico's Laws of Life has never been that these are laws that I came up with. In fact, that would make them largely ineffective if they were all laws I came up with on my own that had no genesis in anybody else's statements, ideas, or concepts or philosophies. Now, a few of them, I don't believe I've ever heard anyone quite put them the way that I have and, and maybe never actually point to them as, as life philosophies. But in general, these are well-known concepts, at least on some level in some places. And they are indeed what I consider to be laws of life. In other words, they're not true because I say they're true. They're not true because I or anybody else invented them. They're true because they're true. Uh, to put it bluntly, if we looked at it this way, not directly related to any individual one of my laws of life, but karma's real. If you're a dick to people, people will be a dick to you. If you're good to people, in general, people will be good to you. That's not some meta, you know, physical, cosmic karma. That's just how life works because that's how humans work. If you're a dick to people, they'll be a dick back to you. Trust me. You know? Um, and there's a, there's a place to be a dick, but it's not all the time and for no reason at all. Just because you think it's going to get you your way. What it's going to get you is a lot of dick thrown back in your face and not in a good way, man. I'm telling you. So that is a law of life. And there are probably hundreds of laws of life. These are just things that I have taken to heart. And by following them, by accepting them, and by making decisions in my life on them, I have succeeded in spite of many, many failings. The, the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is if you've listened to the show for a while and you've heard me talk about this concept before, uh, originally it was there's 30 laws of life. Now, there's actually more than 30. But when I started coming up with the idea that I wanted to do this, I like hard numbers. And when I thought about 10, I said, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't think it's enough given the, what I want to say. And eventually, Dorothy and I settled on 30 laws of life because it could be a reflection every day for a month. And we were starting up our Instagram, and we needed something to kind of seed that. It just seemed like we'll make 30 videos, and we did that. And so I, I, I you know, sat down and said, Jack, what are, you know, because I never really canonized these. I said, these are the laws of life I live my life by. I just kind of did it, and I kind of knew it. And I would occasionally say, Spirit goes law of life number 17. And I would just pull a number out of my ass and say this thing that I have, you know, at some point, came to either hear or accept or state in a different way than maybe it had been before, and then just said, like, that's a thing I do now. But when I started writing this, it became apparent that I had a great deal to say. And it was going to be that if I wrote 30 Laws of Life, it would be like 150,000 words. In fact, 16 turned into 65,000 words. That's a hell of a book. And so as I was writing the book, as I got up to about Law 7... I realized, you know, this isn't going to work this way. And so I thought, well, 10 or 12 seems like something that fits a publisher's format. And I'll say, you're publishing it yourself, so do whatever you think is right. 
And as I took what I had already written, which I was very happy with, and looked at what was left and said, how do I complete this narrative? It came out to 15. And when I got to the 15th law, I realized that it had such a tie into what became the 16th law that it had to have 16 laws. That's how we got here. The other 14 laws are still real. They still exist. They're still important. And if this book is successful, there will be a second book and those laws and maybe a few more will be in it. Because there's even some of, uh, uh, you know, some references to more laws in this book. Like if there was another law, and maybe there should be, it would be this. Okay? Um, so that's what, why it got, you know, pinned down a little bit. And one of the things I wanted you to understand that's, that's, that's in this book over and over and over again, in all of these laws, is the importance of programming your self-learning computer. As my late father-in-law said, your God-given brain. I don't think most people realize, with all the talk about technology and computers and self-learning algorithms and artificial intelligence, that all of that stuff is designed to emulate the human brain. I guess they do understand that, but they don't understand what that means. They understand it in one direction, trying to make computers like humans, and they fail to understand that that means inherently that humans and our brains are in many ways computers. From the very first computers we ever designed, we were trying to get them to do the work of human beings and do the work of human thought. And what we learned is really quickly we figured out how to make them faster and better than humans in many ways. But they were only as good as the human that was inputting the code into them and what that human knew how to make that computer do. So while, yes, the calculations and mathematics that a program could run very, very quickly that might take a person 10 days on a, on a chalkboard to do, to where it looks like something out of a movie about science fiction, you still had to have a person with that capability to understand it initially to program that into the computer. And what we started trying to do very, very quickly then was to take the computer and say, well, what if the computer could extrapolate the next step for itself? Well, that required more programming. And eventually what was figured out with self-learning computers and self-learning algorithms was the computer had to get a result and use that result and retrofit it back into the original program and write new lines of code for itself. That's your brain. You have the most powerful self-learning computer in the world. So this is the important thing about that. Whether you are conscious of that or not, whether you take control of that or not, whether you make decisions about that or not, your brain is constantly being programmed and the code is constantly being rewritten and the new extrapolations as to what things mean is constantly happening. And if you're not doing it, your environment is. And the most influential things in your environment are the state and its system of education and indoctrination and programming and its political apparatus and media. And media in all forms, whether it's music, whether it's television, whether it's social media, and your friends and the people you associate with. All of these things are programming you. And if you want to take it down to a very simple analogy that we talk about with children learning, we all know the story of the little kid that went in and mom and dad didn't see him and he turned the stove burner on and he watched it heat up and it looked really pretty and orange and he touched it. It burned him very, very badly and as bad as it sucked, the one thing we could take away from this, even though he might have scars now, he won't do it again because he learned. 
Because that environmental exposure said to the brain, if you do this thing, this negative consequence will occur. As simple as that is, it's also as simple as every other thing that happens to your brain and your mind and your decisions and how you frame your view of the world works. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating right here. There's a reason when a bunch of executives get together and plan a lineup for a TV channel, they refer to it as programming. Because it's literally programming their audience to be conditioned in a certain way, to think a certain way, to feel a certain way, to react a certain way, to make decisions in their life. Sometimes based on the opinions of fictional characters that were created out of thin air, and those opinions have no basis in fact, yet we take them to be real. And what all this means is if we're not programming the computer, someone else is. But guess what? You can't abjecate the responsibility. It is your responsibility. It's your responsibility to determine the code that goes in and, and to debug the result that comes out the other end. It is your responsibility when somebody tries to input code into your brain as the lead programmer of your own brain to actually analyze that and say, do I want to let this in or maybe can this come in but it needs to be understood in a certain way Or does this code need to be cleaned up? Because what is one of the, the principles of, of, of programming and writing code? When we write a line of code, it affects other lines of code. Some say it affects every other line of code. That's not exactly true. And sometimes a line of code can be pretty minuscule in its effect on other lines of code. There are places where that is. But many times, what and this is what happens, this is where you learn about this in the computer world, you have a piece of equipment that you're selling like I used to many, many years ago. And my customer says, I wish it did this thing. And I'm like, that's not a big thing to do. So you go back to your engineers and say, hey, we have customers that would say in the next software update for this thing, they would like it to do this thing over here. Well, we'll put it on the list and figure it out. Well, wait a minute. This is an easy thing. And like lots, like I called all my other salespeople and everybody that talked to a customer, the customer said, yeah, we wanted to do that thing. In fact, they wanted to do that thing more than all these other things that you guys think they want. And eventually they say, you don't understand, like, that actually goes into a certain subset of code, and if we do that, it's going to take, you know, six months to clean up what it's going to do to other things. And sometimes it's an excuse, but sometimes it's true. And you should see your brain that way. If you take in a fact that's not a fact, and you start using it to make decisions, it can be very detrimental. Because, as Samuel Clemens once said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think you know that just ain't so. So think about that as we go through these laws and how these things are truisms. These things are real. These things are natural laws, natural laws like gravity. See, gra you, you, it, Congress can write laws and government can write laws, and they are laws of men. And they may or may not be based in reality, and you can't just write something and make it true. Congress could write a law and say that, From now on, humans who utter the phrase, screw gravity, are free to float as birds. And upon stating, now I once again accept gravity, they will return to the earth. And if gravity should violate this law, gravity shall be fined up to $50,000 and imprisoned for up to five years in a federal prison. Congress can actually vote on and pass that law, and as stupid as they act sometimes, they might president can sign it. It can become law. And if you walk up on top of a 10-story building and say, screw gravity, and walk off, you're dead. Doesn't matter. But that law of gravity is true.
and laws of aerodynamics are true. So there is a way to go up onto a 10-story building and leap off and return safely to Earth or even take off from that roof and go somewhere else and land where you want. But you have to follow those natural laws of gravity, aerodynamics, physics, etc. That's how these laws are, even though some of them don't seem that direct, like my first one. Always be frugal, never be cheap. This is actually part of my modern survival philosophy, my 12-part modern survival philosophy I built the whole show on. So many of you might be familiar with this, but it's a good place to lead off today. So these laws are designed to be more than just what they are. That if you start using these laws, the programming analysis required by your brain will then use the same process in doing other things. So I want you to think about that, too, as we go through always be frugal, never be cheap. The thing I always use to explain this law is a garden hose. The cheap person goes out and buys the $20 garden hose or the $15 garden hose from Walmart because I just need a hose, and that's the cheapest thing to have. The person who doesn't think about money at all goes out and buys a $100 hose because it must be the best hose with no, no understanding of, well, what makes a hose good and how much hose do I need and what have you. The frugal person says, what's the best hose I can get for the right money that will last me the longest period of time and cost me the least over time? So that person buys a cheap hose, let's say for 15 bucks. A year later, they got to go buy another hose. A frugal person maybe finds a hose for, let's say, 30 bucks. And that hose is going to last them five years, let's say, and usually more if we take care of it, but let's say five years. So their cost for that hose for five years is 30 bucks, and the person who was cheap's cost for a hose for five years is, what, $60, $75. And a lot of people, when you explain it that way, they say, you know, all that over a hose? Well, all that over a hose and a hundred other decisions you'll make in the next year or two across a lifetime changes how much money you retire with just, just on the money side alone. But the other side of that is actually figuring out what is the best thing for me in this given situation. You're always frugal, never cheap. That doesn't mean that sometimes the cheap option isn't the, isn't the best answer. It depends on the application because frugality takes a look at the total of the situation. Here's an example of Dorothy and I buying the, not the cheapest, but a very cheap solution to a problem because it made the most sense. When we go to the beach in Florida, we generally stay there for about 12 days. 12 days. Now, to get two chairs and an umbrella brought down to the beach for us is like 30 bucks a day. So even if it's only 10 days that we wanted to do that, that's $300. Now, if I couldn't afford $300 for a chair and umbrella, I wouldn't be taking a 12-day vacation to the beach in the first place. So it's not that I can't afford it, but it's still $300. It's not insignificant. On the other hand, if you've ever been to the beach without chairs, it kind of sucks. And having a, a, an umbrella to give you some shade from time to time is nice. So what we do, we go to Walmart, we buy two $7 chairs, that's 14 bucks, And an umbrella that doesn't completely suck, that you aren't going to hate, is going to cost you about 25 bucks. So all in, call it $30. So we'll get $30 in chairs and umbrellas. That would be one day of the hotel bringing it there. Now, if we were driving down to the Texas coast, we would take our own stuff. But we're not. We're flying to Florida. Checking umbrellas and chairs is stupid. So we buy these cheap ones. 
they're plenty good enough to last for two weeks. So we spent our two weeks on the beach. There's a little table that they have out on the porch at the hotel we stay at. So we, I just every morning get up, and I take the chairs and the umbrella down there and set it all up because I get up before her, and I do my fishing until she comes down. And somewhere in between, I bring the cooler down. I bring that little table down with me so that we have a little table to put our stuff on. And that way we can keep things out of the sand. And in the end, we're out 30 bucks versus 300 Okay, that that's $270 that goes to my vacation. Or another way to look at it, I'd probably spend that $270 anyway, so it goes into my retirement or my savings or a home improvement project or whatever. It's $270 I didn't spend. Now, it doesn't make any sense for us to find the best quality chairs and umbrella for that, does it? Because we're going to get rid of it. The, the most expedient thing there is to get rid of it. So what do we do? We look around the day before we're going to leave, and we look for a family that looks like they just got there, doesn't have stuff. We go up and say, hey, we have these two chairs and this umbrella. Would you like it? And they say, well, uh, well what do you want? I mean, no. Then we tell them what we did. And we say, all we ask you to do is if you don't live locally, if you didn't drive here, when you get ready to leave, can you do the same thing and find somebody else that can use it and, and pass it on? And it'll get passed on until it either gets tossed out or someone that's local says, I'll take this home and put it outside by my pool or whatever. And then that thing has now progressed and helped other people, but it's cost me less money. Because I'm being frugal versus cheap, even when I'm buying the cheap thing. And, and that is this law in a nutshell. And we need to be using this to make conscious decisions about money. Because it goes anything from as simple as some chairs or a garden hose to a college education. If you're going to go to college, and let's say you're going to spend $20,000 a year for four years, that's $80,000 that you're going to go into debt for. And that's a pretty low estimate today if we're talking about the all-in cost of four years of a university. Don't you think you should know, well, what does this job pay? What, is, what does a job in this field pay with a degree, first entry level? What does it pay about five years in? What does it pay about ten years in? How do people that have been doing this job for ten years feel about it? What are all the opportunities within it? Is this really the best course of action for me? Does this make sense? And if you think about it, if you went and you were going to start a business, it's the exact same thing in principle as getting a college degree. I'm going to take a business loan, an $80,000 small business loan, and I'm going to start this business. So you go to the bank and you say, I'd like $80,000 to start a business. And the first thing the loan officer says is, where's your business plan and your due diligence? And you say, well, here it is. And then you lay it out with projections, and they look at your relative credit history and what you've done and your success and what are the successes of other businesses. How good does that look as far as your planning? How much of your own capital do you plan to put into this? What's your plan? What's your marketing budget? What are your projections? Are they realistic? They look at all of that, and they say, you know what? You look like a good risk. Here's a check for $80,000. You go build a business, and you generate hopefully enough cash flow out of it to service the debt to the point where the debt dissolves to a zero. Now, nobody gets out of shape when you say that if you're going to do that, you should understand the business you're going into. But you tell somebody that about a college education, they get sideways, they get angry, they yell, they scream, and they'll tell you why. They know that in many instances, this particular degree at this particular cost from this particular institution shall not survive that level of analysis. Matt Powers, who teaches permaculture to kids now, used to be a teacher at a charter school, even a charter school had his students do this, and he almost got fired for it. 
He didn't tell them to go to school or not to go to school. He simply suggested they submit to a fun, they submit the, the, the chosen career to a fundamental analysis. And a lot of them went, this doesn't make any sense. He didn't say, then don't go. He said, can you figure out how to achieve this in a way that does make sense? See, once we take this simple philosophy, we start applying it everywhere, which we should when it involves our money parting our pockets. And more so when it involves money that we didn't earn yet parting our pockets in the form of debt. Let's move on from there. Sticking with money on this one today. You can make excuses or money, but not both. You know, when you make statements like this that are fundamental statements of fact, there are those people, and there are people that they make fun of in certain TV shows at times that are at like a Star Trek convention, who when, you know, an actor who played a part in a, in a, in a science fiction show is up, and there's somebody out there that wants to take them down the technical road of why they were wrong when they said something in a show because that's not technically possible, or they said two conflicting things in two different episodes. Like, they want to break things just to sound smart. So when you say this, the way that comes across from people is, politicians don't do anything but make excuses, and they have plenty of money. You know? Politicians don't make excuses as to why they're in power as politicians if they're making money as a politician. They've succeeded at the one thing that they're supposed to do, and that is get elected and stay in office. And also, are you a politician? No, then shut up, because it doesn't apply to you. This is a person looking for an out from the concrete reality. The person who spends most of their life making excuses about why they don't have what they want, why they can't get what they want, why there's too many obstacles, why it's different for them, is never going to be successful. They're never going to be successful. If they ever are, it will be the day that they stop making the excuses, not that they become successful, but that they turn the corner towards success. It is impossible to be successful and an excuse maker when it comes to money impossible. You can fall into money. You can win a lottery. You can get an inheritance. You can just have some sort of stupid luck lineup to where all of a sudden you have a job making a half a million dollars a year showing your ass on reality television. But you are not going to maintain success and build lifelong prosperity as an excuse maker. It's not doable. But the other side of this isn't about what's not, not doable. Okay? It's not about what's not doable. It's about what is possible and what it takes to take advantage of what's possible. When I look at the world today, and I have young people, and I'm talking in their 20s, tell me it's different for us. It's way harder. I'm like, are you... Look, I understand that you, did, you weren't around as an adult 20 years ago since you're only 22, and you were only two and crapping your pants and diapers, but I was. I was your age... 25 years ago, if you're 22. And I can tell you that the things that you have available to you as opportunities vastly outweigh the opportunities that existed for me. Which is why I was willing, as a young man, to pack boxes in a warehouse for nine hours a day in 110 degree heat like a slave. Because that was what I needed to do to maintain myself long enough to find the next opportunity. I could make excuses, or I could make enough money to basically make my life somewhat comfortable until I could find the next step. 
And that next step for me was you can make a little bit more money, but you can gain a trade, a skill, and knowledge, but you're going to have to travel and really work like a slave and work things like, you know, seven at night to seven in the morning, six days a week, and maybe have one day to go home and then have to come back five hours from where you live and pay all your bills on the road out of this extra money that you're making and not really make any extra money for about another year until you get good enough at this that somebody else gives a shit and you can find another way. So I did that. But this isn't about me. But that, I mean, I always try to come from my knowledge point of what I know. That's what it took. Today, a young person can go out and drive Uber or Lyft. They can get involved with something like Rover and do freaking pet sitting tomorrow morning. There's jobs, you know, through Tackle where all you do is go assemble products for people at home that are too stupid or lazy or have too valuable of time to do it for themselves. And I, I mean, I'm not even scratching the surface yet. If, if you're not a felon and you're not you know, deranged looking or anything, you can actually make a half decent living just babysitting today, thanks to the internet. And that's not even getting into product based businesses or service based businesses where you're basically just operating an e commerce platform. Or getting into content generation business, whether it be through something like Instagram, it's more of kind of a model thing. Or something like YouTube that can be educational, or something like podcasting that can be infotainment. I mean, when I, I just I don't even begin to understand how anybody sits on their ass today and says it's different. It's different for me. Yeah, you have a lot more options. Go freaking pick one and do it. Go do something. You can make excuses for money, but not both. So every any time you get to a position where you feel that you don't have enough money, what you should be saying to yourself, writing that code that goes into the computer, what can I do to make enough money to be able to do this thing? How can I build a situation in my life where I need so much less money that the money that I have is more than sufficient for the things that I want? See, you're the, you're the master programmer. You are the architect of the matrix that is you. You can either be part of the, you can either be subject to the matrix around you that society has programmed, or you can take charge. You can make excuses or money, but not both. Next, all power granted to the state will be abused and used with incompetence. Now, again, I've said, I've made a pretty bold claim. These are laws, not my opinion, laws. It's my opinion how you should respond to them or how you might implement them. But the statement itself is a fact. All power granted to the state will be abused and used with incompetence. Now, given I'm an anarchist, voluntarist, libertarian, etc., gorist, you would say, well, of course you think that. But I don't think that. Understanding human beings as I do, I know this is true. You can be a socialist, a communist, a right-wing GOP rhino Republican, an extreme right-wing Republican, a minarchist, a libertarian, whatever, and it doesn't change the fact that you should accept this is fact because it is. It's, it's not really a statement of politics. It's a statement of humans. There is an old saying, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is a restatement of that in a way that makes you think a little bit differently. Because I have no desire with this law to change anybody's political affiliation. All I want you to do is use it as a filter 
not just for politics, but for everything in your life. So you change the way your brain is wired. So how is this an absolute statement? Okay, if the state has a power, that power will be used by people in the end, a bureaucrat or a politician. That is the only two options for power granted to the state. You have bureaucrats, which is any employee of the state, and you have politicians, elected officials within the state. Those are the only two people that enforce, use, maintain, develop, etc., powers of the state. Okay? Now, what do we know about human beings? That they are fallible. That they are subject to corruption and incompetence. That if we get a group of 100 people together, some portion of them, even if it's small, even if it's 5%, that means five of them will be subject to, to corruption. Just they're bad people. Additionally, if you just look at people in general, I'll put it to you this way. The average IQ in America is 98. Folks, that ain't that smart. And if you have a 97 IQ and you're offended by that, I'm sorry. A 98 IQ just ain't that smart. It really isn't. And if you have the average being 98, that means there's a whole shitload of people that are significantly less smart than a 98 IQ. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, an 85 IQ is a lot lower than a 98 IQ. IQ is exponential as it goes up. It takes a lot more to go from, let's say, 100 to 105 than it does to go from 85 to 90. A lot more. Kind of like the Richter scale. So we have a significant number of people in our general population that are just not that smart. Hence, highly subject to incompetence. So it doesn't matter that government systems are ineffective in, in general. It doesn't matter that they have force-based monopolies. We just know that if there's people in there and they have power, some of those people will be stupid, just to be blunt, and therefore what they do will be subject to incompetence, and that some portion, even if it's small, will be corrupt, and therefore they will use that power for corrupt purposes. Now, nobody with a brain really, no one with their IQ of at least 98 doubts that. When you say it, they don't want to take it as true, but when you present it that way, well, yeah. So what that means is any power you give the state, some people that use it will do so with incompetence, and some people will do it with corruption. So you better think hard about whatever power you give the state. Here's a way I explain it in the book. Let's say we have a guy named Tom. Tom gets a speeding ticket. Tom gets a speeding ticket because a corrupt cop set up a speed trap where, let's say... There's a school zone, and there's a sign that says, end school zone. And about 10 feet past that sign is a second school zone that begins again. So Tom goes driving along, and it says he's supposed to do 25 miles an hour, so he does. He sees the sign that says, end school zone. So he picks up to 35 miles an hour, which is the normal speed limit, and he gets pulled over. And the cop knew exactly what he was doing when he went there, and there's no reason for that. Somebody put signs up that was incompetent, a bureaucrat, Right, An employee put those signs up because it said this far, and there's two schools, and there's this little 10-foot space of the road where it's no longer... Now, anybody with a brain would have figured out, we shouldn't do this here. But the incompetent bureaucrat did it, and the corrupt police officer used it as a trap. The person got the ticket and went to the court where the judge, knowing what was done, didn't care 
subject to corruption and incompetence, follow the leather law, and made the guy pay the ticket. Tom's name is actually Fred. He's my father-in-law. This is exactly what happened to him. This is exactly what happened to him. Now, I think most people, even anarchists, say, you know what, you shouldn't be doing 100 miles an hour in a neighborhood street or past the school where kids are getting out. You really shouldn't. So we might say that that is wrong, that sucks, that's too bad. Hopefully that can be changed. But the injury to Tom is a ticket. And the injury occasionally to someone who gets a ticket is unfortunate, but it's worth it for what people call, you know, with big giant air quotes, the greater good, that there's traffic enforcement of some kind. This is the best we have for now. It's too bad. So the injury to Tom is fairly insignificant. And the truth is Tom will now know that's there and he won't, you know, he'll be more likely to look for things like that in the future, even though it's unreasonable the way it's done in the first place. So that's the grand bargain. Well, here's the other side of it. What if Tom is accused of murder? The police officer hides evidence that's exculpatory. The prosecutor is incompetent, so he doesn't find the exculpatory evidence. The judge can be completely competent, and Tom can wrongly go to prison for murder. But what if it's a capital murder in a capital murder state, and Tom is sentenced to execution? Generally, it takes about 10 years to get through death row and get somebody executed in a state like Texas. So this happens in Texas. Tom gets executed. A couple weeks later, we find out about that exculpatory evidence. What's the injury to Tom? Please, for the love of God, really let that hit you in the stomach. What is the injury to Tom? He's dead now. We had found the evidence two weeks earlier he would still be alive. We could let him go. If we didn't have a capital murder state where they could put you to death, even though he was miserably in prison, at least we can let him go. We can't undo an education. Here's another question for you. What is the injury to Tom's wife? What is the injury to Tom's child? Now, this isn't pro or anti-death penalty. It is when you give the, the state the power of execution You are granting the ability to take a life to an institution who you know at times will be corrupt and incompetent. And this happens as well, even in this dire situation. I'm giving you two extremes, something that even I can go, well, yeah, I, I get why we do that. Two, this is horrific and should not ever happen. Does that mean you should change your stance? No, but it means you should ask the damn question. Is it worth it knowing that this thing will be used with incompetence, malice, and corruption for what we get from it. And the bigger thing is, I said this isn't even about politics. The reason I have this law, specifically in the book, the reason this one didn't get cut, is the state is omnipresent in your life. You're going to be asked to make calculations like this almost daily. Somebody's going to say, the government should, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have to go, well, brain, conduct analysis. What does this thing do? What does it prevent? What does it have benefit? And subject to the law that it will be used with incompetence and corruption, is it worth the, the gamble? And again, you get to decide the answer to that. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But if you start running that analysis and you're forced to frequently, several, three, four, five times a week, Because this, this concept is omnipresent in our lives. The state, unfortunately, is omnipresent in our lives. What does that mean? 
That means that you're going to start running the same type of analysis on many other things that are not related to power, corruption, malice, and competence. You're now wiring your brain to this type of analysis. This thing claims that thing. Is it true? What does it mean if it is? What does it mean if it isn't? How do I know that thing? So this is more about the, the reprogramming of your brain to do critical thinking than the law itself, even though the law itself is factual and has its own implications. Which brings us right to the next law for today's show. The greatest failure in leadership in America is at the individual level. You know, there's a commercial out right now, and I, I don't remember what it's for, but it's... Um, It's like, I'm pretty okay at this, is kind of the, the punchline in it. One is one of the versions is the lady's going to go get her taxes done, and the guy that's an accountant says, yeah, I'm pretty okay at this. Another one is the guy's about to jump out of an airplane, and his skydiving instructor says, I'm pretty okay at this. It's okay, it's not good enough. That's, that's, the, that's the sales side of the, the commercial. And that, that's kind of how a lot of people in America have become. I'm, I'm okay at this. They don't, they don't subject themselves to that critical analysis that we just talked about. So they can't be a good leader because how do you feel about a leader that says, I'm pretty okay at this? Well, let's think about a place where you would, you would seek a leader in your life. And, and let's say relatively short term. Let's say you decided to call, cr climb a mountain and, and you're not crazy and you know you're not quite ready yet. So you're not going to go to Everest or actually K2 would be more difficult even though it's not as high and there's less people up there to be in your face. But you pick some mountain in North America to climb and it's not even where you're going to be climbing a rock face. I mean, you're just going to hike a trail. But this is a, a difficult and potentially dangerous climb. So you seek out a guide who can help you not make mistakes, make sure you bring the right things. If something goes wrong, knows how to get in touch with people to get you extracted, keep you alive. You just decide, I'm going to have this insurance policy of a leader, since I'm not familiar enough with the sport of mountain climbing to do this without taking potential risk of my life. You make a good critical analysis. And when you meet that person, he tells you, I'm okay at this. No, I want someone that's good at it. I want somebody that's excellent at it. Well, if you're going to lead yourself in your life, one thing you must be excellent at is making decisions and the fundamental analysis behind them when you make a decision so that even if the decision's wrong, it's well thought out and you've thought about mitigation strategies if it doesn't go well. That's just one piece of this. But there is... This belief in America that someone else should do it. Can't someone else take care of this for me? We should not refer to people that we elect in any office as leaders. They're not leaders. Donald Trump does not lead me. And not because I don't like Donald Trump. Barack Obama did not lead me. George Bush did not lead me. Bill Clinton did not lead me. Technically, I was subject to the command of George Bush the first. George H.W. Bush was my commander-in-chief because I served in the Army. You know what? He was far enough above my pay grade that he did not matter to me. He really didn't. I was conditioned to believe that he did, but when I thought about it, well, he never got in touch with me and told me to do nothing. And I certainly never did anything because he did it first. I never followed him. See, if you're a leader, people follow you. 
If you are behind people pushing them, you are not a leader. You are a taskmaster. If you are in front of people looking back over your shoulder saying, follow me, you are a leader. Well, there's very few instances where people are really going to lead you in the world today. Now, people will lead you as in they will market to you. They will lead you in as they will try to convince you of things, but they will not lead you in the standpoint of telling you the best place and the best decisions to make in your life for what's most important to you in your life now and tomorrow and next year and when you retire. They're not gonna, that is leadership. Leadership is here is this thing that I need to get through. How do I get to the other side of it? In the military, you learn about leadership and you learn about command, and they're different things. Leaders will be followed. Commanders will be obeyed. Now, in military circles, you need a balance. You need to be a good commander and a good leader. And the best commanders are great leaders. But in your own life, you're the one, you have to do both things. You have to give yourself orders, and you have to lead yourself to accomplish those objectives. And we don't do it. We don't do it. We pass the buck in our society today. Someone else can take care of it. When so-and-so, when so-and-so gets elected, they'll put this policy in place and this problem will go away from me. Even if that's true, are you going to wait four or five or six years for somebody else to solve a problem that you could be mitigating at least yourself, if not solving right now? Most of the problems we have in our world today are because people just don't pick up and lead themselves. They don't get off their ass and make things happen. I'll tell you a, a fundamental statement about this law that should hit you right in the core if it hasn't hit you already. If you do not lead yourself, you cannot be free. If you do not lead yourself, you cannot be free. As long as you rely on others to lead you, and that doesn't mean you don't other, ever submit to leadership of another person. But in general, in day-to-day -day life, if you don't in general lead yourself most of the time, you are not free. You are a slave to whatever or whomever is leading you. And that's another thing about leadership. Leadership is something that if it's true, is submitted to, not forced upon. If I have a group of people and we're trying to get something done, And I know pretty well what I want done, and I have a pretty good understanding and fundamental command of the things necessary to get that done. But as I'm talking to my group, I realize that Bill over here has done this a hundred times, and he is, got, he is better situated to lead this thing than me. And if he's willing, I will not only follow his lead, I will use my influence to ask others to please listen to Bill. Because my ego does not override my desire to achieve success. And ten minutes after we're done with that thing, if I realize that the next thing that needs to be done is something that I am more equipped to lead, I will step up and lead and ask that Bill and others follow me. And if the next thing is something that, that, that Tina can do better, I will defer to Tina. Like that. Because it makes sense. But you know how you become that person? You lead yourself all the time. Because what now I'm leading myself to do is recognize the capability in another individual and put faith into it until some such time that that faith is lost due to incompetence or mistake or unwillingness to admit a mistake or whatever it is. And at that point, I'll take command back 
Because I'm not following somebody into a, into a, a bottomless pit. If everybody thought that way, most of the damn problems we have in this country could be solved in a couple years. Because none of it's that hard to solve. In the words of Bill Mollison from Permaculture, though the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions are embarrassingly simple. If you are busy talking about what other people should do instead of doing the things that you should do, you are not leading yourself, and therefore you are not free. That's all we'll say on that one today. I think that's enough. The last one, and it ties into our Aristotle quote. Keep your true friends to people you want to be a little more like in some way. This can sound a little bit elitist, and maybe on some levels it is, but it's really not. I don't mean that since I would like to have more money in my life, everybody that I consider a true friend has to have more money than me. Because then why would they, if they followed the rule, why would I be their friend? See, people who you want to be a little more like in some way. Now that does mean that if a person is truly toxic, if they truly spend most of their time doing or speaking in ways that do not fit what you want to be or who you want to be, you probably need to distance yourself from them. doesn't even mean you can't be friendly with them, especially if they're family and you kind of have to at times. But you better not be spending the bulk of your time with people who don't have something that you're striving to be a little bit more like in their life. So maybe I have a friend, and maybe my friend doesn't have a lot of money, but maybe he is the guy that takes a much bigger personal interest in people's individual lives than I do. Well, I want to be more like him in that way. Maybe he's the guy that will drive 20 miles to help you move a washing machine for 10 minutes, tell you I'm sorry I can't stay longer and leave, and he only came just to do that. I won't do that unless, I mean... You gotta really be my true friend for me to do. I mean, God, I'm gonna go 45 minutes. So that's an hour and a half round trip to do that. And especially when it's inconvenient. Let's say it's not even, it's really inconvenient to do it. There's other things I really want to be doing. It's hard for me to do that. I know people that the second you told them that's what you needed, I'll be there as soon as I can. I want to be more like that in that way. I want to be that person's true friend. Or I would say another thing. That person qualifies to be one of my true friends. Whether or not they become that is between the two of us over time. But that's the qualification. That's the qualification. That person might be really, really good with money. And if otherwise they're a good, moral, and ethical person, and I want more money in my life, and they're better with I want to be more like they are with money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not materialistic. Because the, the thing is, anyway, that you want to be a little bit more like. And, he, and here's the reason for that. You're going to work or you're going to spend time seeing to your obligations for work. If you have a full-time 40-hour-a-week job, that's going to eat 60 hours. Getting ready to leave in the morning, lunch breaks, breaks, driving in cars, things that you have to do that you take home. That's not, that assumes no overtime. 60 hours is gone. You're going to sleep. You're going to sleep about eight hours a day. So that's about 116 hours. And there's 168 hours in a week. So that leaves you about 52 hours other than work and sleep. That you can do anything other than work and sleep. If you're a family man or a family woman, out of that 52 hours, you might find time that you can actually spend with people other than your family 
after fulfilling all your obligations and taking care of your family and being with them, because you want to be, I hope, maybe some people are going to have four, five, six, ten hours a week, that they're able to actually, that you can actually spend, you know, hanging out with friends or what have you. And that means that time is valuable. And I'm going to tell you the flat reality. You know when your your mom or your grandma said that those boys are a bad influence on you or those girls are a bad influence on you? She may or may have not been right about the bad part. She was dead on about the influence part. You cannot spend significant time with another individual without becoming a little bit more of what that individual is. This is how human social relationships and social bonding work. Here's a stupid little story that ex explains that. When I was on leave from the Army, it was probably about four or, or five months before I, I was going to get out. I had to go home because uh, my grandfather passed away. And when you're in the military, this concept of being more like the people around you is on steroids. We call it uniformity. Everybody dresses the same, walks the same, you know, speaks the same. There's a way to fold your damn underwear. And yes, they check. So that precipitates everything. And if somebody starts saying something and it kind of catches on like a phrase or a saying, all of a sudden the whole damn unit's saying it. And I don't know who the hell came up with it, but in the company I was in, somebody came up with when somebody didn't want to do something or was hesitant, if you're scared, say you're scared. And God, that sounds so... Looking back at that, what kind of stupid ass saying is that? But I was a soldier. It got into my head. I went home on leave, and yes, it was my grandfather, but I ended up home for a couple weeks, hanging out with friends and stuff like that. And I said to one of them one day, for I don't remember why, I said, if you're scared, say you're scared. So I go back, finish up my time, get out for real, and go home. And before I left, I'm hanging out with friends again. And I heard that stupid phrase a couple dozen times in a little bit of time I spent before I left the place. I heard it from people that I barely knew. Now, I can tell you for a fact, this was not an Army-wide thing that some other old boy from the Army came back and started. This was an Echo Company phrase. And it caught on, and it became a thing in this small town because I said it once or twice, because we rub off on people that we're close to. And that stupid phrase became part of the local vernacular because I was dumb enough to say it one or two times. Now imagine you spend a significant amount of time with someone that always talks about being broke and not able to make money. You are going to program your brain to start believing that that is true. But if you spend some time, time around somebody that actually believes with concrete, purposeful planning, you can change your lot in life, you're going to start thinking that way. So it doesn't have to be that thing. I don't care what it is. But if you have someone that you are spending a lot of your time with, And somebody says to you, tell me something about Tom that you want to be a little more like in some way, and you don't have an answer for that. You better, I'm not saying to not be friends with Tom. I'm saying maybe Tom doesn't qualify as a true friend. And if you say, but Tom is the greatest guy in the world. He'll do anything to help you. There's your answer to the first question. This is not a trick. But I will tell you, there are some people that when you conduct this analysis, you're going to have to leave where you live, especially as a young person. I did. See, part of why I left, I realized I didn't fit in anymore, but I also realized I had forever changed. But if I went back, I was going to turn back into what I was.
I remember this was after I did my hike. And I, for those that are new to the show, I, I hiked after this point from Virginia to, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania to New Hampshire on the Appalachian Trail. And then I went back home again for a few weeks. And I was up in the air about what I'm going to do, but I had a friend down in Texas that said, come on down, there's lots of opportunity here. And I went fishing in, real early in the morning, and there was a donut shop not far from this place I used to go fishing, and I got you know done around noon, and I went to this donut shop to have a cup of coffee and some donuts. And since I was just kind of in a laid-back mode at this point in my life, I decided to you know, not get them to go or whatever. And I just sat down and I was reading a book or something. And I must have heard the word cheap about a hundred times. This is cheaper there. That's cheaper. Cheap, 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 cheap. And, you know, this is a place that noon on a weekday, you wouldn't think there'd be a lot of 20 or 30 year old people at a donut shop other than cops. No, there were lots of people unemployed. Lots of people work swing shift. There were young people, old people, middle-aged people, everybody, and everybody using the word cheap, 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 cheap. Finally, I was like, i got to leave. I didn't even understand what was bothering me so much. But the truth is, and I'm not cutting the place down or nothing, but the people in that place have lived with a scarcity and a poverty mentality for so long, it is multi-generational, it is ingrained. And I had gotten myself to a point in my life where I, I, didn't, I was still broke. But I knew I was destined to go do something for myself. And I said, I got to get out of here. So I took the opportunity that was in front of me. Had that opportunity not been there, I would have found one. I would have gone somewhere. I would have separated myself from that. It's the best decision I ever made in my life. Now, let me tell you something else about the place I'm from. I think somebody with the right mentality, with the strength, that didn't grow up there, can go there and find incredible opportunity. But it wasn't going to happen for me. And if you're that young person, you may need to do what I did and move 1,500 miles across multiple states, or you just might need to move to the other side of town. But if you're wrapped up in a mentality that prevents you from becoming what you want to become, you may have to put some physical distance between yourself. Because if you don't, it's much easier to stay with the people you know than to find the people you need to find. So that's as much as I can say on that one today. I want to finish with why I chose to write this book and some final thoughts today. So I've talked to some people that have known me a long time about this book. And they're like, oh, you're finally going to actually get off your ass and write a book. Yeah. It's going to be about modern survivalism. Nope. Permaculture. Nope. Well, gardening or aquaculture. Nope. Nope. Hunting. Nope. Foraging. Nope. Libertarianism. Not really. What the hell? <laughs> It's your whole wheelhouse. What is it on? Philosophy of life. What? What? And if you really think about it, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff on that. Lifestyle planning is the tag on the, on the show. We've done a lot of shows on that. Lifestyle design. But it really doesn't seem like a good marketing fit for me, does it? I'm writing this book because I want to give back. I think this will be good for anybody. I'll give you 70. I think you'll enjoy this book. I think it'll help you. But our young people, teens, late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, early 30s, that is the perfect group for this book. We bitch about that generation so much. And I recently said on Facebook, it's time to stop bitching about millennials because most of y'all 
Millennials are now older than you were when you started bitching about them. Okay? So I don't know what generation we're talking about. Generation Z or whatever. Into the Millennials, I don't care. They are not responsible for their shortcomings 100%. A lot of them come from what they've been taught and how they've been taught to think. And more accurately, how they have been stripped of the ability to think critically and analyze things. And I'll tell you something here about me at the end. I say this at times, and I don't think people really believe that I believe when I say it. Maybe they like to believe it's true, but they don't believe I believe it. I am an asshole on some very real levels. I am an asshole and I am a jerk. I am also lazy. I am lazy. I work my ass off and I'm lazy. I'm an oxymoron that way. I'm a, I'm a lazy work, workaholic. What I mean by I'm lazy is there are things that I just don't want to do, so I don't do them. And that's good in some levels. I don't waste my time on shit just because somebody else says I should. But there's times I procrastinate doing things that I do know need to be done. That's why I've tried to set a rule in my life that when I really need to get a project done, I take all of the shit I really don't want to do as part of that project, and I, I put it as close to the front as it can. The only way it, the only way the thing I want to do the least isn't step number one is if step number two and three are required, or one and two are required, and it has to be three. I'll put them, the things I don't like as early as because I'm lazy. I, I procrastinate over things I don't want to do. I am a rebel. I am bullheaded. I refuse to follow rules for the sake of following rules. I'm a very intelligent person. I don't say that to brag. I'm just making a statement of fact. If I wanted to have gone to college, there were a lot of ways I could have done that. There were a lot of opportunities for me. But I was a mediocre student in high school by choice because I just didn't give a shit about so much of the crap they said was necessary. So the things I found interesting, I got A's in. And the things that I found not interesting, I got C's in because that was good enough to get the hell out of there. I am a deeply, deeply flawed man. If you doubt that, ask my wife. She knows me best. She'll tell you all about my flaws. She'll tell you about all the wonderful things about me, too. But there are a lot of flaws. There are people out there who are smarter than me and harder working than me when it comes to pure work ethic of whatever it needs to be, I'll do it, that are far less successful. There are people who are miserable that have much greater potential than I do. And what they don't need is someone going, you can do it, you can do it, I believe in you, motivational type bullshit. No, what they need is a fundamental reality of the things necessary from a process of how to think for themselves, how to lead themselves, how to make the right friendships, how to be the right kind of friend, how to make good, smart financial decisions, how to subject everything that's a significant investment from a garden hose to an education to a fundamental analysis that says, don't spend this money this way, this is stupid, this is not going to work, or this, there's a high degree of probability of success with this modification, whatever it is. They need to be able to do that. In spite of what an asshole and lazy son of a bitch I am, I live a life that people dream about living. I do my experiments, I talk for a living. I don't want for money. I'm not filthy rich. I could be wealthier if I had stayed in the world I was in when I started this podcast. It made me unhappy, so I didn't do it. I took the easy way out in a lot of ways, not the hard way. I did what I wanted instead of what society wanted from me. 
In spite of all that shit, I have what I want. This is why. These fundamental laws of life are why I have what I want in spite of all my failings. Not because I'm so great. Because this works. Because this is systemic. You follow it and these are the results you get. When you teach somebody to build a fire, you show them how to do kindling and you show them how to do a little little teepee. And, you, and when you build the thing right and you take one little match and go, you get a fire. The person that built the fire can have an IQ of 75 or an IQ of 175. It doesn't matter. If you follow the procedure, you get a fire. Now, the dumb person might build in a fire in a place where it burns other things down. The smart person might build it in a way that actually powers a machine that double uses the energy. Who knows? But the process in going the right direction and following the right path is based on a fundamental set of principles. I feel, I feel honestly, that I am so blessed in spite of myself by these principles that it is incumbent upon me if I'm going to take the effort to write a book to give these things to whoever wants them. I'm not so grandiose as to say, give this to the world or some stupid shit like that. I just know that there is still inside of me 22-year-old Jack Spierko. 22 years old, recently moved to Texas, on the road working for MCI, installing MUX systems that aren't even used anymore. Making $14 an hour and having to pay for a hotel room out of that and sleeping in my truck twice, two days a week because that was how I could make this work for a year so that I could get enough knowledge so I could go back home and not be on the road and take another job and learn more, move into fiber optics. And still be on the edge of broke. Have some money, but on the edge of broke. That said, I want a wife. I want a family. I want a career. I want freedom. I don't want to be broke. And I don't want to just work for the rest of my life in a nine-to-five job. I don't want to just be an employee. I want to write my own rules. I want to be able to hunt and fish. I want to be able to grow my gardens. I want to be, you know, I want to be able to do my experiments. I want to be able to do all these things. And that kid started listening to books on tape. Because it was so long ago, there weren't even CDs, really. At least I couldn't afford a CD player yet. He started reading books. And he started seeking mentors. And he said, tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. And he had to fight for 10 more years to really get somewhere. And that place he got to looked pretty good to everybody else. But he had to fight for another five, six, seven years To really get to a point where you could say, I'm doing shit my own way now. And I know how hungry I was at that point in my life. And how much I would have given if somebody would have just said, these are the things to build the next 15 years on. So you don't have to learn them all the hard way on your own. These are the things that will speed the process up. These are the things that will keep you true to yourself. These are the things that will keep you from making bad mistakes with friendships, relationships, trust, money, society. These are the things that will keep you from wasting your time on things you can't control instead of focusing on the things you do control so that you will have more things that you control instead of less. 
These are what those things are. This book is what I would have written to myself. If you sat me down today and said, and you, you have people say this, if you could write a letter to yourself when you were 21, 22 years old, what would you say? I've often said I would say nothing. Because I don't want to lose what I have. And the mistakes are what led me here. So what I would write is a philosophy. A philosophy where the path would largely leave the same place. Just maybe it would be a little straighter and cause a little less pain for myself and others along the way. I feel the only explanation for someone who is as flawed as I am, for being as successful as I am, is these principles. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I want you to help share this book with others. So I'll tell you real quick, I do have an ambassador program. If you'd like to be part of this, just email me, with TSPC Ambassador. And I already have a bunch of people, and I'll put you in a folder. And as we get closer... I'll let you know how to partake in it. But basically, it's going to work like this. You buy 10 copies of the book, one for yourself, nine for friends or family. But you make 10 individual orders. They're going to ship free, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't cost any more money to do it this way. And you ship those nine directly to those people, and you do it on the day the book launches on Amazon. Because if we do that with just 50 people, I can be a bestseller instantly because they're individual shipments. It's just an idea that I came up with. But I'm going to tell you, I won't let you down. Think of the people you know who need to hear this, but they're not going to sit down and listen to a podcast. But they'll read a book. Think of the people you know that need that one little kick in the right direction to take life, grab it, and make it their own. And let me know if you want to be part of it. And again, that'll be coming. But that's why I wrote this book. Anyway, with that, if you do like the show and the work that we do and you want to help support us, remember, one way you can do that is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You'll see all the items I've ever reviewed on Amazon. If it's there, I own it. I spent my own money on it. I'd buy it again if I needed it, or I wouldn't suggest that you do. Integrity is pretty important to me. Um, and it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you start there, you help support us in the work that we do. But here is um, the item of the day today. This is one of those things that you look at and you go, what the hell's the point? How about a one-foot extension cable? An extension cord? One foot. What the hell are you going to do with a one-foot extension cord? Well, what about that power strip under your desk? And then you got to plug a thing into it with a big old clod hopper plug. And it takes up three of the outlets on the five-outlet power strip. Well, you take a one-foot power cord, you plug it in, the other four are still open, you plug the clod hopper into it. Cool, isn't it? It's one of those things you look at, why do I need that? And as soon as you realize what it'll do, you go, why the hell did I think of that? That's genius. The other thing that you can do with it is there are some times where you just need about an extra foot of cord, and if more is not better. Here's an example. I have these uh, crock pots and, and roasters that we use. Have you ever noticed how short the damn cords on those are? We have an island in our kitchen, and it kind of has a bar that overhangs. Underneath that bar in the island is a quad box electrical outlet on both sides of it, so that if we wanted to put a crock pot on it, we could, right? I mean, it's, it's a bunch of counter space, or a sous vide machine, or uh, the vacuum sealer, or whatever. Now, the vacuum sealer has a nice long cord, so I haven't had to do this with the vacuum sealer, but the crock pot... The crock pot has a really, really short cord to where the crock pot has to sit right at the edge of the bar or it won't reach. 
Now, if I put a six-foot cord on it, it's going to get kicked off the barstool. The dog's going to run by, yank the cord. Crockpot of hot shit's going to go flying through the air, hit the ground, piss me off, burn the dog, and maybe set the house on fire. That, that won't happen. You get my point. But all I did was take one of these one-foot cords, put it on there. It's a couple bucks a piece is what they come out when you buy them a package of five. And left it there. Now it has a cord that's long enough to do what it's supposed to do. And this is a twofer. I also have, there's, it's, it's one uh, male plug to four female plugs. Don't care if that triggers you because you're a social justice warrior. Sorry about it. It's the way it works. And what that does is, unlike the little four-way or three-way splitters, where you got that kind of block in there, you just have like a hydra. This helps with cable management under desks and, all, and behind TV sets. And for you guys that are you know, doing your projects with hydro and stuff like that, all of this stuff just makes your life easier. And it's cheap and it's easy. $8.99 for a five-pack of the one-foot cords. So, again, less than two bucks a piece. And uh, the hydras are a foot and a half long. You can get those. And they have a lot of application. You can check it out at tspaz.com. Remember, if you want a notification that the show has gone live, if you want to know what the item of the day is, you want to know special things I don't tell anywhere else, you want to be on the Daily Mail, just go to survivalpodcast.com and click subscribe. When you do that, you'll get a mail email once a day. I only send one email a day, and it just says, here's what's new. And it's all in text. There's no crap. There's no track. There's nothing. Right? It's just a basic text email once a day on the Daily Mail. You can find it on the subscribe page at thesurvivalpodcast.com. But as always, you help support the show and the work that we do whenever you shop at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Hey, and consider becoming a member of the MSB. That's all I'll say about that today. But that's the real way that we pay the bills around here, and it is a good ROI. All the discounts will more than pay for it. Let's talk about our song of the day. It amazes me sometimes. How much the song of the day fits the show with no planning by me. See, John Adam puts these lists together and he just sends them to me. And sometimes I go through them and really pay attention. A lot of times I'm just like, I don't know what the song of the day is until I've put the show together. And then I'm like, oh, got to get the song of the day ready. And that's nice about having somebody to take care of that for you. You're able to do that. And um, so I came up with today's show this morning. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I'm like, you know, the book's coming out. I should do this and, and what have you. And then I put it together, and then I got the song of the day. And the song of the day is by Gil Scott Heroin, Heroin, Gil Scott Heron, and it's called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. I haven't heard this forever. I've heard the saying over and over again. Many of you have heard that saying over and over and over again and hadn't heard this song. Um, this song is, uh, well, it's old. It's older than me. It's from 1970. And it was on the Small Talk at 125th and Lenox Avenue. And it's a spoken word song. Almost kind of like pre-rap rap, without it being rap, so it's not crap. Anyway, um, Gil Scott Heron was a composer, musician, author, and poet. And this, this song was taken to be almost militant by some people, but he said it wasn't. It was meant to make you think and be satirical. But here's what he said about this song. Uh, he said, the revolution takes place in your mind. Once you change your mind and decide that there's something wrong that you want to affect, that's when the revolution takes place. But first you have to look at things and decide what you can do. Something's wrong and I have to do something about it. I can affect this change. Then you become a revolutionary person. It's not all about fighting. It's not all about going to war. It's about going to war with the problem and deciding you can affect that problem. When you want to make things better, you're a revolutionary. 
Boy, I hope that's what that show, the show was for you today. I hope I don't just need to say another word about it, except this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from the Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the point from 29 District. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell. Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or the rare earth, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coat. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.